0: The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. I think it's safe to say that everyone wants to be great at something. Everyone wants to be great at something. No one wants to be mediocre. Uh, The aim is not to be average. Uh, We are hardwired as human beings to win, to achieve, uh, to reach for, and listen, to be better better than the next guy at something. Whatever it it might be. It it might be, I want to have more money than the next guy. It might be a higher degrees, um, a better job, a greener grass, literally greener grass. Um, It might be more trophies or better friends. We we all want to be better or greater at something than some others around us. And, you know, if you don't believe me, social media actually makes the point for us. Because tell me that people don't post online to see if they can't get more favorites, and more likes than the other guy. And uh, we all want to be great at something. In today's text, the 12 uh, disciples of Jesus, uh, they've uh, come to him and they've actually been arguing amongst themselves as to which among them, among the 12, which of them is the greatest. Which one of them is more important? Which one has more influence? Who's closer to Jesus? and Therefore to God, who has more influence and status? And it's actually crazy in my mind as I read this. It's crazy that the 12 are having this argument because they've just spent months, if not years at this point, walking around with Jesus, listening to him teach, seeing the manner of his life, seeing the perfect, would you agree with me? The perfect example of servant leadership. In Jesus Christ. They've been watching this. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. They're arguing about status and position. And I, I want to I read the text and I just want to laugh at them. Are you guys nuts? I just read the story. I just I've seen everything you've gone through. I want to laugh at them for their immaturity. And their pettiness. And then I just spend five minutes thinking about my own life and realizing how immature and how petty I can be and how much I jockey for position and recognition and acknowledgement. I remember that I'm afflicted in the exact same way, constantly competing for the title, the greatest. That's something. When Jesus set them straight, And he defined greatness in a way that they never, ever imagined. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at what it takes to be great in the eyes of Jesus. And and really, that's all that should matter, correct? Not the number of likes on Facebook. But all that should matter is that we're great in the eyes of Jesus. Amen? All right, let's look at the text together. This is Luke 9, 46 uh, through 50. We're going to actually, if you're carrying the same edition of the ESV, we're going to get to turn the page today, folks. It's been months. So, uh, Luke nine forty six. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. All right, let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful for the week that's behind us. I'm grateful for the moments that are in front of us right now together as a church. And what a great thing you've done and are doing here. And we give you the glory for that. And we would ask that you would continue that good work in us. Father, we want more, more of you in our lives. And so help us to see you in the word today to be ready for your spirit's work in us to make us more like Jesus Christ, who is our living Savior and Lord. God, we pray this in his great name. Amen. Amen? Amen. All right. If you want to be great in the eyes of Jesus, let's uh, start here. Uh, Check your motives. Check your motives. I think it's interesting to note here from the text in a reading of this. I don't know if you picked this up as you were reading it, but Jesus doesn't actually condemn their desire to be great. He's not actually ripping on the ambition to be great. In fact, I would just say that God has actually designed us for greatness. He really has. He just wants us to pursue it in the way that his word prescribes, that the Lord prescribes. The ambition wasn't, wasn't what was wrong. It was their approach that was the problem. It always comes down to motive. Why do you want to be great? If your pursuit of greatness is for yourself, if you're like, I, I want to pursue greatness because I want it. I, I want to I experience the feeling that comes with being great. I, I want the accolades of people. I want to feel esteemed. I want my self-worth to be elevated by the things that I do so I can be proud about those things. I mean, if that's your concern, then you're not really going to care about whether or not you're great in Jesus' eyes. Honestly, those two things are just so completely incompatible with one another. And so we got to do it Jesus' way. And so a basic definition, let's start with this. A basic definition of the word great. It, of course, is an adjective. It describes the kind of life we want. And to be great means to be notable or remarkable or exceptionally outstanding, to be important or highly significant. That's the thing that we want to be if we want to be great. Thus, a person who is great has achieved importance. Listen now, importance or distinction in a given field and recognized by others. As such, now we're not necessarily saying that you win. You know, this isn't like a, I won an Oscar or I won the Nobel Prize or I or, or I'm in the uh, Order of Canada. It's not that level of of distinction. I mean, it could be, but that is so such rarefied air. So so very few people ever achieve to that kind of of level of greatness in the world's eyes. That's not really what we're talking about. But what is it for you? What, well, what could it be? Again, it's just by way of comparison to the people around us. And so honestly, it could be. The illustration from the introduction, It's kind of makes us smile a little bit. But it honestly could be the best grass on the street. Like, I just, I, just want, I just want to have the greenest grass. I want to have no weeds in my grass. I, I, I'll do whatever it takes to get there. I'll spend all kinds of money and time on it. It's, it's all about greener grass. I want to be, on my street, the guy with the greatest, greatest, greenest grass. Or maybe it's the nicest car in the lot. I want to have the nicest car. No rust, never dirty. It's always perfect and pristine. I love my car. Or maybe it's the best behaved kids or the kids that... This is a Facebook thing. My kids do the cutest things. I want to share it with everybody. And I just want to prove, because I know you posted something cute last week, but the thing that I'm posting is even cuter. My kids are cuter, clearly, than your kids. Like, 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 please share what I just posted. We want to be the greatest. The number of friends you have, name-dropping, who we know. We want to be the greatest. We can scale it to whatever level we want. That's what the twelve were looking for. Verse 46, look at it again. An argument arose among them as to which of them, which of the twelve, doesn't even enter their mind that someone outside the twelve could be the greatest. Doesn't even enter their mind, by the way, that who's the, in this company, who's the greatest? Jesus is the greatest. I mean, maybe they should have had a discussion perhaps about that. But no, which of them was the greatest? And I, I, like to, I want to figure out kind of what precipitated all of this. But you remember just a little bit ago, we looked at the transfiguration. You'll remember that the three got to go up and see the transfiguration. It says at the end of that, that when they came down, they saw the glorified Christ and they saw Moses and Elijah. I mean, who would, who would agree with me that that was an awesome thing to see and would have loved to have been there? How many people would have loved to have been there for that? Uh, the, the rest of you didn't raise your hand. You're lying. Again, all of us would want to be there for that for sure. And they come down, and now there's like don't you sense like maybe there's a little bit of privilege status going on here? That the three got to go up and, and that there's nine who didn't, and and um, and and maybe they're arguing because of that. We don't really know from the scriptures, but it's kind of fun to speculate a little bit about that. The timing is certainly curious. But these twelve, they're really thinking about power. They're thinking about position in the future kingdom of God that they were envisioning. They still didn't have a sense that what Jesus' mission was about was that he was going to give his life. He was going to die on the cross. Uh, The resurrection was certainly not something that was on their radar. They didn't have any idea that what Jesus was talking about was not a physical kingdom, not the reestablishing of Israel in a place of power and influence in the world. Uh, He's talking about a spiritual kingdom. They're not thinking that at all. So they're thinking, how can I get to the best place, a place of position and power inside of Jesus' kingdom? Kingdom of God. In their minds of Jesus, if Jesus is going to be the king. He's going to be the king. I've got to make sure I've got a seat at the table. And I don't want to be down at the far end of the table, by the way. I want to be in the seats closest to Jesus. I want to be right beside him in that place of power and authority and position. I want to be the one that he leans over to and talks to. In those whisper tones. So here's the thing. Verse forty-seven. Just the first part there, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he, he's God. So so he knows thoughts. He knows the intention of the heart. He he knows motive. I and mean, we're talking here about checking motives. And the one thing we can never do with one another, ever, ever, ever do with one another, is question one another's motives. We can't know the heart. Cannot. When Matthew 7, 1 says, do not judge it, say, do not judge motives. Don't tell anybody you know what's going on in their heart. That is the purview of God alone. And Jesus has that going on here. He knows their hearts. He knows their motives. And he knows their motive is off the mark. As we seek to do this for ourselves, because again, I I can't help you figure out what your motives are. I can't help you with that. I've got enough trouble on my own. Just figuring out my own motives and making sure that I'm in a good place and a pure place uh, before the Lord in all the things that I pursue. But But as each of you do this just for yourself, are my motives pure in seeking greatness and seeking to be a great person? I just think it would be helpful for us to break this down. So let me give you three kind of three areas where we pursue greatness, where we would need to check our motives. Okay, first one is this recognition. We talked a lot about this already. Fame, status, position is having the title so important to me. Do I trumpet my title? Do I tell people what I do and how great I am at it? Is it important to me that people know my status? How many degrees I have, what my role is in my job, how successful I've been, how many awards I've received. Is that important to you? If it is, you should check your motives. Or how about in the area of riches? Secondly, really just talking about possessions. Is your house too important to you? Are the things you have in your house too important to you? Is the amount of money you have in your investments too important to you? Are the cars in your driveway too important to you? Is all of that driving your identity? Is it driving your sense of significance? Is it the thing that marks your greatness? Look how great I am. Look how much I have. Obviously, I'm great. Recognition or riches. And then in this one, relationships. Relationships. I just want to be great in relationships. I mean, uh, on its face, that sounds like the right thing, doesn't it? I want to be the best husband. I want to be the best uh, wife. I want to be the best mom or dad. I, I want to be, I want to be great in my relationships. And that sounds like a good thing, but so often really this is just a placeholder for anything related to, I find my significance in other human beings and whether that's, that's in my marriage. You're, you're, you need to be great with, with Jesus. And, and listen, if you're great with Jesus' husband, you'll be great as a husband. If you're great with Jesus' wife, then you're going to be a great wife. Okay? Don't, don't worry so much about being a great parent. Be great with Jesus, and, and, and you'll be a great parent. So, we got to get our motives straight, what we're going after. For some people, it's not even related to parenting or marriage, it's just sex for them. I, I just need to relate to human beings in some way. And so, we, we deviate from the biblical pattern of sexuality in order to find significance, to be great, to make us feel like we're something. So we measure greatness in terms of what we, listen, what we gain in all of these areas. Our greatness is measured in what I can get from all of this. How much recognition can I get? How, how, much, how many riches do I have? How many relationships are coming my way? You need to check your motive on all of it. Why are you pursuing what you're pursuing? What's the purpose? Is it the glory of God in all of these things? I just want to please him. Or is it the glory of fill in the blank with your own name? Is it for my glory so that I might be great? I love this quote by uh, William Arthur Ward. He really just calls it out. Greatness is not found in possessions, power, position, or prestige. It is discovered in goodness, humility, service, and character. That's where greatness is found, and that's where Jesus goes with it. When he essentially says to them, oh, you have to lose your pride. Having checked our motives, we now need to lose our pride if we want to be great in the eyes of Jesus. And I think it's um, not a secret at all that pride is at the root of every sin. It's at the root of every sin, but it's It's glaring. It's glaring when it comes to the seeking of greatness. Most often than not, pride at the root of every sin is just kind of tucked under the surface. The sin kind of manifests in different ways depending on who we are. But when it comes to the seeking of greatness, pride is right out front. It's not not subtle at all. So we need to lose our pride. Jesus uses a small child here um, as an object lesson. Again, picking up in the middle of verse 47. Verse 47. He took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, the end game, the prize at the end, is God, it's the Father. That's that's the end game for all of us. We're hardwired inside of us. We have this this, uh, divine spark in all of us, this this longing for the eternal. We have eternity inside of us. We're all longing for God. That is the end game, to have a relationship with God. And Jesus kind of steps it out here and says, this is how we get that. We step it all back to receive God the Father, to have a relationship with the Creator. You need to receive Jesus. And to receive Jesus, he says here, you need to receive this child that he's using as an object lesson. You need to receive this child in his name. Now, again, it's an object lesson. He's not saying that if you're nice to children, you're good with God. Not saying that. Okay? He's not saying that. He's saying if you receive the child in his his name. He's saying, he's using the whole thing as an example to say there is a posture that you must have. There's something that you must believe and practice in order to receive Jesus Christ. And and it's this. Humility. It's just, it's humility. And the child makes the point because in that culture, at at that time of history, I I think we kind of miss it here a little bit. But at that time of history, children were somewhat expendable. I mean, infant mortality, which we have so greatly reduced through health and science. Infant mortality in that culture was so high that parents actually attached less value to their children. I I have to believe that it's only because they were insulating themselves from the hurt of losing children so frequently. pain of childhood death so intense and so in a very real sense as Jesus pulls this child alongside him they're the perfect illustration for those that Jesus is going to refer to as the least the least esteemed the least thought of the least valued I mean, here's what we know about children with all due respect to any children who might be in the room uh, forgive me uh, but this is this is what we know about children they are small they are weak they are dependent and they are vulnerable and because they're all of these things in case you're just kind of chafing a little bit because of all of these things we actually have laws in place in our country to protect children because all of that is true that it's illegal it's against the law it's a criminal act to neglect a child, to abuse a child. Those are great laws. To some extent, God is measuring who we are by our treatment of children. I know a lot of you are reading online right now about what's happening south of the border with Planned Parenthood and the selling of fetal body parts. I don't want to get all into that, but I'm just going to say this. That individuals and nations are judged harshly according to the scriptures by their treatment of children. That God uses it as a measure. Scriptures make make it very clear that it would be better for a person to have a millstone hung around their neck and for them to be tossed in the sea than to abuse one of these little ones. God help this nation because I'm sure what's happening in the U.S. is already happening here. We're just not aware of it. God help us defend the children, those who are the least small, weak, dependent, vulnerable when compared to the big people. Now the thing is about the 12, they're thinking the exact opposite of all of that. They're trying to show how big they are, how strong they are, how significant they are, how important they are. And they're thinking that to be all of those things is to be great. And Jesus, as he was wont to do, just takes the whole thing and turns it on its head. Saying in verse 48, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The guy at the at the at the far end of the table. The guy who nobody thinks of the the last person picked. When you're picking teams for baseball. The the least person, the the person who gets no recognition, the the person serving and laboring in obscurity, that person is the greatest. Jesus is saying you've got to lose your pride and become more childlike if you want to be great. You have to think of yourself a little bit more as small, weak, dependent, vulnerable in order to be great. That had to be humbling to hear. Nobody, nobody was thinking that way. Nobody. And even as I'm saying the words in this room right now, I can just sense there's still some of us, because I have a little bit of it back here too, going, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. We still need leaders. We need to be strong. Being important is not a problem. So humbling to hear this. It's our own pride that keeps us from true greatness. Now think about who's saying these words. It's Jesus, right? He's saying all of this. And His greatness. By the way, His greatness is just a fact. Not based on anything He does. It's just a fact. He's God. So He's great. But in His humanity, His greatness would be manifest Not in all the powerful miracles that he would do. Not in all the healings that happened or the casting out of demons. Not in the words even that he was pronouncing that people were in awe of. The thing that would mark his greatness would be the moment that he would make himself the least. Submit himself to men and allow himself the king of glory the greatest one of all, to be crucified at the hands of the Romans. It was his sacrificial death that marked his greatness. He would serve us by giving his life on the cross, the ultimate act of servanthood. So I'm I'm thinking now that greatness in the eyes of Jesus is not at all what you gain but it's found in what you give it's not in what you gain but it's in what it's what you give it's the sacrifice of self it is to be the least to be as one commentator said the one most willing to humble himself in order to serve others When you're humble, as Jesus is suggesting here, you're willing to do whatever he says to become great, kingdom of God great, whatever he says about it. The way Peter put it in his letter, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that, at the proper time, God will exalt you, that you will become great, in the proper time, but the way to get there is the way of humility. It's not a passive characteristic that a person automatically has. Oh, well, they're such a humble person. It's not that, but a decision that a person makes to put themselves under God, and therefore to make them a servant of God and a servant of others. That's that's greatness. Now, I want to I want to tell you, I. I saw multiple, dozens and dozens of examples of this in the past week. What an illustration we had of it, of this, of humility, of serving others, of losing pride when we watched this recap video a few minutes ago for our high five day camp. And and the thing is, when we watch the video, here's here's the thing. We watch the children, don't we? Because they're so cute. And parents are looking for their kids. Oh, my kid's so cute. Aren't they great? I'm such a great mom. But the thing is, I'm watching the volunteers. What was more striking to me this week were were not so much the campers, but the people who gave themselves to love the campers in Jesus' name. I saw one, one, um, Peter's here, Peter, did the survivor thing. And I just saw him on Friday and his kids were here and he's waiting for parents to pick them up. Five days of being in the woods with kids. And Peter's just leaning here like this. There was no affect. It, it wasn't sadness. It, it wasn't it wasn't joy for sure. It, it there was nothing. It was it was depletion. It, it was I was spent. And, and he wasn't the only one. 135 volunteers this week to take care of almost 300 campers. And I I look at their pictures. I look at their faces. I saw what they did, giving up weeks of vacation, a week of vacation, giving up their time, spending all of their energy so that campers could learn how to build toolboxes and bird feeders so that they could learn how to survive in the woods so that they could learn how to do first aid and save someone that's in trouble. So that they could learn to cook, to sing, to do science experiments, to skateboard. What happened this week in this place was great, was great in the right sense of that word. The people who gave their time, if you're here, don't become too proud of this. But in my eyes, and what I believe would be the eyes of Jesus, you're great. What you did was great. Well, that week's behind us. So, so we can't go back and do it. You say, well, I feel inspired. I should do something like that. I should lose my own pride and get involved in areas where I might not get all the praise and accolades. Well, the good news is that they're serving opportunities every single week. And so in my notes I have here, insert shameless work for Christ promotion here. (laughs) So like there's no glory in a lot of the serving roles here at Harvest. You know that, right? There's not a lot of glory. I'll admit it's pretty awesome to be on parking detail uh, in July. You You can get a tan. It's nice and warm. It's not hard. I saw there was like three people out here. Uh, this morning when I got here at about 10 after 8, they're all eager, ready to go. A little less so in February. Uh, but uh, right now, serving it, but it's it's a bit of a thankless job. And there's always the cars that completely ignore them, do whatever they want. Maybe that's you. Or, or serving down the hall and harvest kids. I mean, there's a lot of really obscure roles that go on down the halls. And aside from a few parents seeing what's going on, not... Not really a lot of thank yous. Jeannie is kind of effusive in her praise, and I get that, and I appreciate that about her, but ultimately, could I just say this, that a lot of the serving roles in this church are thankless. The people you serve don't say thank you. Sometimes the leaders, even myself, would just forget to say thank you. But we would still invite you to serve, to ask the question, why exactly am I doing this? The obligation is on us to serve. We have to give ourselves in this way. This is serving the least, serving those who won't say thank you. That is the path according to Christ. That is the path of greatness. I love Luke's gospel. I don't know if you knew that about me. But here's another line from Luke 17, uh, When you have done... All that you were commanded, Jesus says. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. One translation says, we have only done that which we ought to have done. That's the servant of Christ doing that which they ought to do. And I want to tell you one thing. There's lots of serving opportunities. You can go to Work for Christ on our webpage, and you can find places where you can serve. There's a whole listing of opportunities there for sure. But coming up, I want to tell you about this. I've told the members about this already. But on Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to be launching a new initiative called, uh, we don't really have a name for it yet, but it is our 5,000 Hours Compassion Project. And our desire is to make an impact outside of harvest in our community in barry and simcoe county by giving a combined five thousand hours of community service in the next 12 months the thing is you don't have to wait till then community agencies are looking for people just like you who are motivated in your case motivated by jesus just to love people to serve them but again you have to understand the people that you will serve in these agencies will not pay you back in any way more often than not they will not even think to say thank you and if you're doing it for recognition you're going to miss the point that's just your pride but if you do it for jesus if you do it for true greatness then you're going to get it all right finally this If you want to be great in the eyes of Jesus, adjust your attitude. So it kind of shifts the scene a little bit here. Uh, Verse 49, John answered. Isn't it great that it's John and not Peter putting his foot in it this time, right? Yeah, John. But somehow, again, speculating with the text, I just, I picture it kind of, I picture it happening this way. John's speaking, but Peter's behind him going, John, say this somehow I still want to blame Peter for all of this. Uh, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons. That seems like a good thing, right? Casting out demons. We saw someone doing a really good thing, in your name even, and we tried to stop him. (laughs) Does this even make sense? Okay, Because, because he does not follow with us. Now, Jesus had just finished saying to them, stop being so self-centered. Stop being so glory-seeking. And John says on behalf of the 12, someone who isn't part of our little thing here, they're trying to do something. He's talking about the 12. This person, whoever they were, this nameless caster out of demons... It's part of the larger group of those who are following Jesus, just not, just not part of the 12. Now, this issue is probably really stinging for them because they you just remembered back to verse 40 that the disciples had failed to cast out a demon. Remember this? So, so maybe they're just a little upset. We couldn't get it done. The dad comes with his son says, I, I talked to your disciples. They couldn't cast the demon out. Now this other guy who's not part of the 12 is out there casting out demons. And so they're feeling like failures. No one likes to be shown up. The best defense they determined in their minds was to denounce the man, verse 15. But Jesus said to him, John, do not stop him. For the one who's not against you is for you. Now, this is not a blanket statement about just anyone who's not against you, but specifically about other people who love and follow Jesus, but aren't part of your little thing. We we can be really bad at this, by the way. I mean, this thing, Harvest Bible Chapel, I mean, it's grown. We're grateful for it. It's grown here in Barrie. We started out with about 38 people. You know, so God's grown it. We, we love that. And, and it's grown as a fellowship. We were the third church plant. So there were only four harvest Bible chapels. Now there's like 115 of them that have been planted in the last 15 years. Now that seems big to us. But, I mean, to us it is because it started out with almost nothing. The whole thing started in 1988 with just 18 people. So you kind of look at this and you just see it and you go, well, this is a big thing. But can I tell you, honestly, it's a pretty small thing. Harvest here in berries is a small thing. Harvest worldwide is just such a small thing compared to everything else. We, we, we just have a little thing going here. We're grateful for it, and we want to be faithful with the thing that God has entrusted to us. But please, let's never be so arrogant as to think that the thing we have going on is the only thing. And I don't get a sense like you even have that attitude. But, but just in case, it needs to be said, because Jesus is saying it to John here. But I'm not grateful for the relationships that we have in this town and, and the pastors and churches that see uh, the mandate that we have together to reach those who don't know Jesus Christ. Oh different expressions of that. So grateful. We had a very young worship team this morning. Did you notice that? Add up all seven of them, roughly the age of Pastor Roger. <laughs> is he in the room? I wouldn't have wanted to waste that. Oh, there, there he is. OK. <laughs> But Lauren is here from Mapleview Community Church. Thanks for being part of the team, and Ben is here from Innesville Community Church. And we're grateful to have these two uh, young people uh, helping us out here today on our worship. I had I've had coffee in the last couple of weeks with Pastor Martin from Esser Road Presbyterian and Pastor Brian from Celebration Church, an Anglican Evangelical Anglican church here in town. They both love Jesus with all their hearts. I love those men. I love what they're doing in their churches. We have a great relationship with Pastor Jay. At Mapleview, Pastor Rick over at um, Emmanuel, Pastor Carrie at Connexus. I love what God is doing in all of these churches. love what's happening over at South Shore a Bible Church, and Pastor Jason and I have uh, lunch on a regular basis. I love what God is doing at Willow with Pastor Jay and Stefan at, at, uh, at Bethel. I love what God is doing. I love that we see the various expressions. We're not all doing it the same way, but we're all doing it in Jesus name. Amen. For the glory of God in this city, and this county, we're seeking to do it. They're not part of harvest. They don't need to be in the sense of what Jesus is saying here. They're not against us. Therefore, they're for us. We're all pulling in the same direction. What Jesus is saying here is when we lose the pride and get humble, it requires an attitude adjustment that impacts how we act and react and what we say and don't say. No one modeled this better than Jesus. Now I want to read for you, if you want to follow along your Bibles, I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 2. There is no a better passage in the Scriptures for illustrating this point of having the right attitude. Philippians 2, 1 uh, through 11 The entire entire sermon today is encapsulated in in this passage. Verse 5 says again, Have this mind. The NIV and New American Standard both say, Your attitude should be the same. To have the mind of Christ is to have the attitude of Christ. To have an attitude is to think in a particular way. And in this case like Jesus, who the text says, emptied himself. We need to empty ourselves. By taking the form of a servant, we need to become servants. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We need to be dead to self and alive to Christ. That's greatness. Not by anyone else's standard but God's. And that's all that matters, correct? That's all that matters. Here's the thing as we wrap this up. Just a final thing. I saw this tweet by Joshua Medcalf. I honestly don't know who he is or what he's referring to necessarily in the tweet, but it, it captures what we want to think about as we close. Everyone wants to be great until it's time to do what greatness requires. For the Christ follower, true greatness is the way of humility, is the way of service to others, of emptying self, serving others, especially the least among us. And the question would be, are you willing to do what's required to achieve greatness in Jesus' eyes, to check our motives, to lose our pride, and to adjust our attitudes? Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.